Welcome back to America's Talking. I'm Austin Berg. Today, I'm so pleased to be joined by David P. Hardy. David is a distinguished senior fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation. He's the co-founder and retired CEO of Boys Latin of Philadelphia Charter School. He serves on the boards of the Center for Education Reform, the Pennsylvania State Coalition of Public Charter Schools, Independence Mission Schools, and Ad Prima Charter School, which he chairs. Dave is also the host of a new podcast, School Choice Report, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So under your tenure... Boys Latin grew to more than 800 students. It was the largest grade six through 12 school that was all male of any type in the region. Right. It blended kind of classical studies with more modern pedagogy. What does that actually mean? What what of classical education do we need to preserve and keep and you think is a great idea and what kind of needs to be updated, refreshed, or added? Well, the classical education started with Latin. You, you know, our boys were required to have four years of Latin. But they also included classical studies. So they learned about the ancient world, the world of the Roman Empire, the good and the bad of it, the first civilization to have bureaucracies and, and, and big time politicians. So they learned all the nasty lessons that we're going through today. So it's a great place to learn how to learn. In order to learn Latin, you have to study, you have to memorize, you have to be able to, you know, commit things to memory and be able to analyze them as you, you know, um, turn them on, on some kind of test. So it's a good way to, to learn how to be a student. You know, we have students who come to us, a lot of them from the Philadelphia school district, who never really had to be a student. So we had to get them to learn how to be a student, learn how to take on rigorous work, how to fail in, in it and go back and analyze what you did wrong so you can do better next time. It, it really is. We could call Latin the breakfast of champions. That's the reason why. So it's a combination of the the difficulty of the material and then the way in which that it's learned encourages uh-huh. or or fosters better outcomes across things that aren't classical education. Is that sort of what you're saying? That's right. Now, we also, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a contemporary component to our school. Each boy in the high school is assigned his own laptop. We do a lot of things through that. We want to get them comfortable with that technology. We have a lot of high-tech kinds of activities, like our robotics team is really uh, doing some amazing things, so much so that uh, we have a lot of guys who've gone on to engineering, and that was something that that was an interest that was fostered within the school. So Latin not only takes you back and you learn, you have this extensive vocabulary, you learn a lot of technical words, but it also pushes you forward, prepares you for what's coming up. And and I think we've seen both sides of it. So opponents, I suppose, would say, or naysayers would say, well, yeah, of course, Boys Latin is getting these incredible results. You're skimming the cream of the crop, right? You're only getting the best students from the public schools. And meanwhile, the families that don't don't have the wherewithal to send their kid to a better option or don't have that opportunity, they are stuck in these struggling schools. What do you say to those folks? I say that you don't understand the situation that we're working. Because first of all, there are plenty of options for high-performance students already. Masterman and Central, probably one and two of high schools in the state of Pennsylvania are denied. They're in the top 10, both of them, and they should be close to the number one because they get the pick from the entire city of Philadelphia to build these schools. And by the way, Central has a majority girls, as does Masterman. 
So spaces for guys in a high performing school is shrinking because there hardly is hardly a high performing selective admission school in this city that doesn't have more girls than boys. So it's a matter of having access to this. We provide guys who may not qualify for that top school the access to something that would happen in the top performance. The other thing is that it's an insult to parents to act like they don't know how to find a good school. Oh, come on. It's like, you come to my neighborhood. Where's a good barbershop? I live here. I can tell you. It's the best supermarket. I live here. I can tell you. Same thing about the school, which tells you something. A school like, uh, we have a school uh, in, in our city, Strawberry Mansion, who only 10% of the kids in the catchment area go to that school. That tells you something right there. They're pretty smart. It's a local performance school. They know what it is. So, I mean, this whole idea that somehow the government is protecting these parents from being taken advantage of, I think is a big farce. As a matter of fact, I think that the government should be ashamed of itself for some of the things they present to these parents as education when they know it's not. And give me a really good example. It's a funny one. Well, you know, we, we had Latin school. We, we uh, did all the things that Latin schools do. We participate in something called Fertilement, which is a competition of Latin schools. And it's about poetry, history, and language. And they have you know, a bunch of other things. And it's a lot of fun. They have a big competition for it at Penn State University. But we also have individual school Fertilement. And, and that gets you sharp from the big one. So the school district had a school near us who started advertising that they had Latin. So we called them up and said, oh, let's do a Fertilement together. Never heard from them. And we called a couple of times, never heard from them. Then I find out that they didn't even have Latin. A Latin teacher was there for one year. That was no commitment to the subject. The fact of the matter is boys Latin have more Latin teachers than any school or any school district in the state of Pennsylvania. That's our commitment. I mean, we have seven Latin teachers. There's no school district in Pennsylvania that has seven Latin teachers. So it's, it's a matter of commitment to something. We did it. I think the other the interesting thing about that, that makes total sense. In Chicago, where I'm speaking to you from, a third of all schools are less than 50% enrolled in Chicago public schools, meaning the schools that kids are in are under-resourced, obviously, because you're not going to hire you know, a full-time art teacher, for example, for just a school that's half empty. And what's happening is parents who are being told that they can't pick the right school for their kid, they choose, but they choose the exit. So, so enrollment is just tanking because families don't have a better option to choose or, or the option that they choose is not in Chicago public schools at all. Uh, you know, much less a different school within Chicago public schools. So that makes total sense. Is Chicago experiencing a uh, population decline? Chicago has been for 50 years. It's it's sort of a stagnant and, okay. and shrinking city. That's happening now in Philadelphia. I mean, between the, the way they shut the city down for the pandemic and also the crime and violence, we were averaging uh, per hundred thousand more murders than Chicago, you know? The people who run schools always try to act like everybody else in the world is an idiot and they're there to save them. And it'll be further from the tree. And they wouldn't like it if people treated them the way they kind of treat their, and I hate to say this word because they get upset, 
customers, you know, the people that they're there to serve, they treat with, with great disrespect. I think that anything you want to uh, do, if you can explain it to the parent and it makes sense, they'll be on your side. These are their children. They're looking for opportunities for their children. They're not there to kind of poo-poo anything that comes along. They want to see it. They want to hear about it. If it works, they'll participate. It's uh, very difficult, or I should say people rarely do this, talk about education, especially in big cities, without talking about race. And I know you know Dr. Fuller and the story of Milwaukee and you know the first and largest school choice program in the nation was really led by Dr. Fuller and Black working class families in the city of Milwaukee. And yet teachers unions, many of whom are self-proclaimed advocates of Black families and Latino families and just uh, oppressed people in general, are the most virulent opponents of school choice. How do you explain that dynamic? Well, the teachers union is very crafty because they, they support a lot of things that would be beneficial. And then they have a lot of things that support the teachers union that they portray as being beneficial in black and brown family. It's very tricky. It's going to a lot of power within the Democratic Party. Here in Pennsylvania, we had something called the Lifeline Scholarship that was in the House. And we had three Democrats who were about to vote with the Republicans for this Lifeline Scholarship. Well, one guy, they took out before he even got to the Capitol step. Second guy, when they were ready to vote, they called him to the front of the chamber and we were watching it on TV. I don't know what they said to him, but all the blood drained from his face. And he went and voted the way he was, they told him to. The third guy hung in there, voted with us. They stripped him of his committee, spent a whole bunch of money trying to, trying to beat him in the, in the primary. That's what they do when you don't follow along. Now, here's little my problem came when it came to vote, no Democrat came up and said, I don't like this bill. It really stinks. That's what I'm not voting for. Or they wouldn't say, you know, I would vote for this bill if they did X, Y, and Z. Nothing like that. They didn't say anything. The teachers union was able to stop the beat. The other thing is the people who got calls never got a call from the teachers union. They had all their minions calling. So they have all these other people who they've supported in other ways to push in for the teachers union. That makes them very tough to beat. And that makes education very tough to move because the people who work for the educational system are, are, are stopping any kind of advancement or improvement of the educational system. So even in states, I wanted to talk to you about places where school choice has seen success in moving the ball forward. So you look at Arizona, you look at West Virginia, you now look at Arkansas, there's going to be really universal education savings accounts for kids. So the parents uh, choose exactly where that money goes. And the, uh, the problem I see there is not with giving those scholarships, but you're inducing a lot of new demand for options, but the supply isn't necessarily there. You could give a kid, you know, $25,000 in rural West Virginia, and they're not going to have a good school yet. So I'm curious from your perspective, what are some of the, the barriers, the impediments to good supply of schools when we do have uh, uh, students and families that have those options? I think like everything else, demand will, will spur supply, creation of supply. I go into uh, a gas station uh, in, in North Philly or West Philly 
and I see that they sell bottled water, condoms, energy drinks. They wouldn't sell that stuff, you know, 10, 15 years ago. These are all completely new things that they're selling and, and in a place because they know that's something people are looking for. They're going to come in there and see it and buy it. That tells you people know how to respond to what people want. Okay, that's a crude kind of, of, of example, but an example nonetheless. That people, people, uh, they know you want something, they'll have it. I think one of the things that happened in the supply of private schools was charter schools. Charter schools came in and people said, why should I pay when I can get the same quality or maybe even better uh, quality uh, education at a charter school? That really did hurt the private schools. If they had something like a Lifeline scholarship when they did charter schools too, then instead of the school district being 40% charter, at school district, that, that 60% would probably be more like 40 or 35% because people want to get out. People would have options. Problem with, with having options right now is just they don't let you. The authorization of those options is not available or the funding, the proper funding for those options are, are not available. So it makes private school education something that only the wealthier people with means can, can have. Which I don't, I don't get that at all. There's a lot of private, a lot of private religious schools that were here, like uh, Clara Muhammad, which was a good, very good private school. And I used to get kids from that school. They were, they, they were students. <laughs> and they ain't joke about it. And, and, but that school is gone now. Like I said, very few private religious schools. If they had the money, if the money followed the child. Low income people could have the the the. Uh, privilege of sending their child to a religious school and having that religious education um, included. People should be able to have that. What inspired, one, just your love of learning, because that's clearly something you're passionate about. And then second, entering into this oftentimes difficult, contentious, highly personal debate about school choice. What inspired those things for you? I had school choice within the public school system. I never went to the, the school that my neighborhood was inside me. My mother lied about our address for me to get into my elementary school and also for my high school. So, I mean, it was important. And what happened, I'm the youngest of four. My older brother and sister, my mom followed the rules. She didn't like what she got from that. So my, 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 the younger of my two sisters and, and I, Never went to school in the neighborhood. She made sure that my my uh, sister just right above me um, when she graduated. She started college, but we didn't have any money, so she she went for I think a year, and that was it for her. By the time I came along, there was a whole lot more financial aid, and we were in a little better shape. So I got to go to college. I got to finish college. Um, but my love for this whole thing comes from. The opportunities I got inside the public school system. I learned how to play a musical instrument. I played basketball. I wrote for the newspaper. I participated in, in, in um, you know, theatrical production. I had all the stuff that helped that made school fun. I had that. Okay. And this is during the baby boom. Everything was crowded, but they made sure that we had these opportunities. 
you go to a school now, they don't have these opportunities. And you have something, these opportunities weren't things that we would have naturally said, we want to do this. Somebody talked us into this. Somebody made this interesting and made us want to do it. And that that somebody, we had a relationship that showed they cared about us, could make us do that. That's what's missing in the school. That's what's missing. You know, if you had people like that, you would have a lot more of the things that, that come along with it. You would have more of the trust, the willingness to try new things, the willingness to extend yourself. You get that in an environment where you know people care about you and they're looking out for your best interests. The students are well, well, well aware of who is and who isn't. That, I think, gets to sort of judgment of teacher quality and school quality, right? Which I think, you know, has been studied for decades and it's st- it seems almost at a stalemate. It's like the teachers union says this cannot be done effectively no matter what you do because there's too much bias of administration. And then there's sort of the pay scale obviously is very difficult to change when it's a collective bargaining agreement. What do you think of uh, as the correct way to do teacher evaluation? Should it be its own special category of stuff or should it be like, you know, how people are evaluated when they go to work at Deloitte or something like that? Where do you see that balance? I don't think you have to evaluate them on what they did with who they were able to, to teach. And let me give you a good example. When we did our AP classes, we had everybody in the class start the class at the highest level. So we would have a couple of guys to get a four, maybe three guys to get a three bunch of twos and a bunch of one. Whereas we know of other schools who tried to teach their kids all together kind of in lockstep. So when you see their results on, on, the, uh, on the test, you see one person gets a one, 18 twos, and maybe one three. My question in a situation like this is, was there enough education in that room for somebody to get a four or five, let alone what they got these twos, if you were paying attention, you did everything that you were supposed to. Was there enough education to get you there? I don't think there was because they kind of wanted to march you through. Education is, is kind of let people go and see how far they can go, not keep them back. And I think that's what we do too much in, in this whole thing. We make, it, we make decisions that hold people back. Decisions like that that, that help people back or decisions about what classes you can take, what curriculum you can take. You can't, you can't make those decisions for people. Some people will go in there and fail, and they'll walk away and say, hey, I tried it, I failed, but I'll do something else now. Or I went in there, and I didn't think I could do it, but whoa, I'm pretty good at it. You know? But let them make that decision. Why should the government, why should somebody, somebody else make that decision for you? And there's too much of that. Okay, if we taught everybody at the highest level, it's kind of like an opera singer. You know, you want to you want to hit hit a high note. You got to go over the note. You come down a lot. Okay, we push high. They'll come down at the right spot. They'll come down at their right spot. But we got to give people a chance. And right now, I think too much education is limiting people, not propelling people. If you were king for a day of the American education system, and you got to make a few decisions about how testing works, what would some of your top priorities be? What do we need to change about testing? You know, testing gets a bad rep. Testing is how much does a student know, okay? And, and you know, yeah, there's, there are things that can kind of influence tests. 
the people know how to wade through it and figure that kind of stuff out. But this whole idea that we should be afraid to know how much we know. Even what I do know about testing, this is probably three Secretary of Education's ago in Pennsylvania. I met with him and he told me that before they before they gained any kind of evaluation of teachers based on state test scores, there was never any incidents of test of cheating in the state test. No student ever tried to cheat in the state test. When they started tying that the teacher performance, students never cheated. The teachers started. And the fact is, they didn't want people to know. Now, listen, if you have a whole bunch of students and, and you're struggling and you have to get better, you don't hide from it. But when you start cheating and making people think that you're doing a, a different job than you're doing, not only are you a cheater and a theft of services, those people should go to jail. But the main thing is that look what you're doing to those children. I think testing is something that we do need. I think that we, sh we shouldn't put too much emphasis on one test. I think maybe we should test a little more often so that we have something on a continuum. But if you have one test a year and everything relies on that test, that's a lot of pressure. And I don't think that gets you your best result. I think you could give the kids who failed that test the same test the next day. That's what I'm going to do better because the pressure's off. So, I mean, the fact is, if you really want to find out what the information is, you, you change things. The refusal to do that is because that's a refusal for accountability. If you tell me you want me to do something and I want to do it, I have the right to negotiate the way, you know, I'm going to negotiate the way that, I can have a fair shot at doing what you want and make it as best on me as possible. But if I don't want to do it at all, I'll start criticizing the whole process. I can't say, hey, I'm too lazy. or I don't want to be tested or I don't want to be judged. Something wrong with you. Dave Hardy passed my test. He is a distinguished senior fellow at Commonwealth Foundation. You can listen to his podcast, School Choice Report. Dave Hardy, thank you so much for talking. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Freedom and liberty are important to all of us. If you're looking for civil, intellectual conversations with those shaping the future of freedom, try the Future of Freedom podcast with me, Scott Bertram. We speak with leaders across the country in the greater conservative and libertarian movements. In-depth conversations about where the next intellectual battles will happen across the country. It's the Future of Freedom podcast. Find it at americastalking.com or wherever you get your podcasts.